Um, these just happen to be projects that we're working on and have identified for the moment. And hopefully as we expand and grow, we will take on more places around the world and hopefully continue to do as much good as we can for kids that need help. Episode 19, Neil Bailey. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. With us today to discuss his experiences in motorcycle world travel is Neil Bailey. Neil has ridden in 45 countries around the world and has been the motorcycle editor for Speed Channel as well as contributing editor to various motorcycle magazines. He was also the host of Neil Bailey Rides, a 2013 television series documenting a charity ride to a Peruvian orphanage, which, as we'll hear in a bit, transformed his life forever. Neil, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Travis. Thanks for having me on. So I gave the listeners a little bit of background on you. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about Neil Bailey and your affinity for world travel by motorcycle? Well, Travis, I started uh, my interest in motorcycles, maybe how a lot of us did as a teenager. Um, by the time I had turned 16, I had a little moped that transitioned to motorcycles by the age of 17. And here I am at 53 years old, and I have ridden ever since. Um, I would imagine that my career in journalism, television, and the stuff that I do in motorcycling was really born out of a desire to figure out how someone could pay me to ride around on motorcycles. And uh, that's basically what I did. I, I think I got to the point I got tired of paying for it myself coming home from trips broke and busted and having to go look for a job and start all over again. So that kind of started my career. I can certainly understand that. Really, I um, had worked in motorcycle shops. I'd you know, ridden motorcycles around the world. And most of my life had been, you know, I'd been a race fan. Um, always hadn't ridden motorcycles. So in early 2000, I did my first article for Rider magazine about a trip that I'd taken into the Himalaya in northern India to raise money for cancer victims. And it's a really interesting, a lot of interesting things that happened in my life. But in terms of my career, that was interesting because Fast Bikes, the magazine out of England, was there and they were filming. So I kind of was intrigued by the whole idea of making video. I was doing a charity ride and ending up doing print journalism. So here we are 15 years later and uh, really nothing's changed. So you got into it. I mean, you've always ridden motorcycles as a kid, like you said. Um, but I think you really got into it when you seem to have thrown in the towel and, and shipped a bike over to, to Europe. Um, tell us about that experience and about the Father Giovanni story and how it all got started there. That's um, – you've got to go back to 1988. I was um, 28 years old. I had been – I'd ridden motorcycles around Australia. I'd ridden – from Florida out through Canada to Alaska, an old Honda 550. I'd hitchhiked around the world, backpacked, and I was getting ready to head to South America. I had an R80 GS, which was the bike of the day. Of course, we still have the GS line with us today, 25 years later. And I was all ready to go. I had an eight, eight and a half gallon gas domer here, Paris Dakar tank and luggage, some sponsorship. And I had an industrial accident 
and broke a disc in my spine, which unfortunately led to multiple surgeries. And it kind of killed the dream of riding to South America. And it wasn't until, until 1995, which was some seven years later, that I was well enough and fit enough and able to ride well enough after a very big surgery that I got back on a motorcycle, actually in Guatemala, and I rode south. And it was on that trip in Peru six weeks later that I met Father Giovanni. And we spent three days together exchanging our life stories. And I think in my life, that was the biggest, probably one of the biggest catalysts for change that I ever had. I returned to America not really knowing that the change was in me. I've got a, a well-told story about how I was working in the motorcycle shop and a guy comes in and tells me he's just spent $5,000 buying Chrome for his Harley. And I told him he was an idiot. And, <laughs> and I, I realized in that moment you can't be telling customers stuff of this nature. So I quit my job. And not really knowing why, and it's only looking back, I took $5,000 and I took off to Europe. And, and that was the beginning of the change. So while I was at home, of course, I was able to visit with my family. My mother lived in southern England. I picked myself up an old KLR650, and I held on to my $5,000 and did some work to figure out the luggage and the bikes. And it was kind of an amusing story. I had to talk my mother into loaning me my grandmother's funeral money to buy the KLR. Really? Well, I didn't want to use my dollars and, and get them all beaten up on the exchange. <laughs> my mother had put some money aside to bury dear old grandma. And so once I convinced the old bird that granny wasn't going to die anytime soon, she broke loose the funds so I could spend pounds buying my bike. And uh, in the summer of 1996, I left my mother's home in England. Oh, oh I thought I was going to turn it off. So in the summer of 1996, I departed for mainland Europe on a KLR 650 and over the course of the next five months, I rode to the four corners of Europe and the northern, obviously, eastern, southern and western corners, which was 23 countries, 17,500 miles and uh, a whole boatload of adventures, as you can imagine. And that trip, you know, I wrote diaries. I took photos. I didn't really have an idea about what I was going to do. And I wasn't really totally aware of the impact I think that Father Gio had had on me at that point. But uh, clearly I had changed and um, things were starting to go differently inside me. And that was when I made the decision to come back to America and really, as I said before, figure out a way if someone would pay me to travel around the world on motorcycles and hopefully get paid. Yeah, I can understand the desire to do that. Looking back on it, I think I took the $5,000 and said, look what you can do with five grand. And you, this guy in the shop had bought you know, a bunch of stuff for a Harley. And that was my, you know, maybe I was, it was my poking my middle finger up at that whole idea and why I went to Europe with five grand. I certainly had more money in the bank at that time. I'd just sold a house. But um, it was interesting because I rode alone and had a lot of experiences and, you know, made a committed decision to come back to America and, and pursue a bit of education and, and, and try and start a career getting paid to ride motorcycles. So in the, you know, the nature of traveling by a motorcycle, there are plenty of times that things go wrong. Uh, do you have any good stories to tell us about 
a time when things didn't go so well? Um, I think I've always been fairly lucky. Um, you know, most of the serious accidents I've had on motorcycles or ones that really hurt and broken a bunch of stuff have either happened when I was young and stupid or during my journalism career. Um, traveling, I've had some, I have had some issues. I mean, I, I blew an engine once in the outback in Australia and we were about 50 miles outside Alice Springs and there's very, very little traffic out there. I mean, you maybe some days we would only have, you know, maybe half a dozen vehicles pass us or be in the same direction as us. So that was pretty interesting to be sitting out in the bush for a long, long time. Um, finally, a truck came past and took my my wife at the time um, back into Alice Springs. But he only had room for me, for her, and he didn't have room for the motorcycle. So she left me some supplies. And um, <laughs> I gave her a list. I told her to order up an inlet and outlet valve, all the various gaskets and seals and a cam chain because <laughs> the chain had broken on the front cylinder. I bought Yamaha 1000. And I, there was a Yamaha dealer in Alice Springs. So I sent her off with a shopping list. And um, I think we had stayed there. There was a little hostel there. I told her I'd, I'd figure a way of getting there. So I sat there for hours. And uh, finally, some kid came past an old GS750 air-cooled four-cylinder with a tow rope. And he was on his way to Tasmania, which was completely the wrong direction. But he turned around and towed me back to Alice Springs, which was kind of an amusing. I don't know if you've ever been towed 50 miles on rough roads with a tow rope and a motorcycle. But that was kind of an interesting experience. Yeah, I imagine that makes for an exciting <laughs> event. It was it was not dull. And, you know, I've had some – I crashed in Ecuador one time and – and uh, actually had to see a very nice doctor about that same injury yesterday. It's a, one of those stupid injuries plays plagued me my whole life because I cracked some stuff in my neck. And that was not good. I had to do a lot of work on the bike, finally in Peru, and get a bunch of stuff welded. Um, I, I think I've, I've really been pretty lucky. I Someone tried to steal a bike from me in Stockholm, Sweden once. I was a bit delayed on my travels. Yeah, I've ran from the cops in Istanbul. I mean, I've ran from the cops in Romania. I've been held up at gunpoint a couple of times. But it's all just pretty standard stuff, I think, when you're riding around the world. Right. I'm sure it pales in comparison to the to the great experiences that you had. Absolutely. There's sort of things that just happen along the way. I mean, you're, you're very much in problem-solving mode when you're on a motorcycle trip. You're always doing something. These things just come up. It's only afterwards maybe they seem worse or more dynamic or glamorous than they really are yeah they tend to be stories that we just have a have a little laugh over and and get on with life it's good good fun memories yeah i mean after alan carl with his broken leg in bolivia story it's kind of hard to top that one <laughs> yeah that's that's not a good one you know they, everybody's got some good story we like to hear him but but i but i kind of like alan carl's story you know it's like he he obviously spent quite a bit of time with me came to visit me and and we talked about that incident you know and what a real downer it was and how difficult it was for him and he had to put the trip on hold and come home and go again but you know i think looking back on it for him i mean it showed showed an enormous amount of resolve and showed him how committed he was to the task and and he kept going so maybe maybe they're just challenges that we have to overcome well they are i think that's the whole point of of the adventure is to uh, have to mentally co overcome those issues. That's all in part of the fun of it. <laughs> it is for me.
this trip down to Peru really changed your life. It allows you to see that that side of the world and a bunch of children that were were in orphanages and and very very much in need of quality water and education and roofs over their heads. You co-founded the Wellspring International Outreach in 2008. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, when I first met Father Gio in 95, I was not um, leading a particularly philanthropic life. Um, I was divorced and um, I was working in a motorcycle shop and we were just having a good time. I mean, we were you know, riding bikes and living for the moment. Um, I had been very involved with charitable endeavors as a kid growing up, um, something that it really connected me to recently was the television we used to watch encouraged us to raise money for projects in Africa. Um, when I was a teenager, I'd left home and I'd, I worked full, as a full-time volunteer in a, a home for what they called maladjusted kids. I was sort of like, a, um, I was only 18, so I was, I was you know, not too far beyond them. So I kind of played a house parent role and just getting to breakfast, you know, educating them, getting to school, helping out, playing games with them, doing things. And um, they're basically the product of you know, broken homes. A lot of them didn't even know where their parents were. So something, I guess, about abandoned children, uh, these were kind of abandoned kids that the state had picked up, was in me. Um, I probably got a little complacent after that. I think giving up a big chunk of time at 18 to voluntary work, I maybe thought I'd done my time. And then obviously, you know, marriage comes along and kids come along and careers come along. And, um, it was sort of in the middle of this that I had learned that Father Gio had passed away. But meeting him, I hadn't initially thought too much. I knew he did a lot of really cool projects. Um, we had talked about some of the engineering projects, but I wasn't heavily focused on the kids he used to look after until I learned of his death, was connected with his sister, and started, you know, I started coming back to the need to do more charitable endeavors in my life. My career was going very well. I was riding motorcycles all over the world. And I took off in 2008 to do a medical mission at Hogar Belen with Father Gio's sister because I knew that that was some, I had learned from her that, that Hogar Belen was one of the projects that he had supported. And obviously after his death, it was, I'm sure they were struggling to have certain things done without him. So that's really how it happened. sell nearly everything they own, then pack up and travel for three years around the world alone on a motorcycle. Alan Carl did pick up his new book, Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine, and Connection, an adventure that will awaken your senses and inspire your spirit. Explore 35 countries on five continents with stories of connection and culture, more than 700 stunning photos, flavors, and food. Visit ForksTheBook.com and use promo code 180TACK to get $9 off through April 15th, 2015. Hi, friends. Will you help us make the Adventure Sports Podcast successful? Please rank us on iTunes and leave a review. Subscribe, rank, review. Hi, this is Peter Schuster from Geargasm.net. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. So what does Wellspring Outreach do 
Um, how do you go about helping out children down in South Africa and Peru? Well, I went to, to answer your question about Wellspring, I went to Hogabalin in 2008 and uh, took a doctor and Maria, and we spent a week or 10 days down there giving medical care. And the doctor I was traveling with was my family doctor when I lived in the mountains, and he had a, a family practice called Wellspring of Life. So we decided to form Wellspring International Outreach as sort of an extension of of his domestic practice. And we proceeded to start a North Carolina charity and started fundraising. So, I mean, I didn't know the first thing about you know, starting a charity. I knew there was an orphanage in Peru. I knew there was a bunch of kids that needed medical assistance, clothing, buildings. They were getting to school and they were getting fed, but they needed help. And I just you know, completely blindly started chasing, chasing after that idea that I would help these kids and build them a new home and support them. And that was early 2009. And here we are in 2015. So we're about um, five odd years later. Wellspring is developed now. We're a full 501c3 charity. We have a board of directors, legal teams, web people, um, and we are still raising funds for Hogarbalen. We have not at this point been able to raise enough money to build them in the new home that they need because we've done uh, projects like we had to put a bridge in. When we did Nobody Rise, the TV show, we had to rebuild a bakery. So there were two pretty big projects that have cleaned us out on the monies we've raised. Um, but this year we go back April 19th and uh, – we meet with the administration that oversees Hogarvalen, and we're really, really hopeful we can start to build this year. Oh, that's yeah, great. And, you know, you have to remember, you look at something like Wellspring, it is a voluntary organization, uh, organization run by volunteers. So nobody gets paid. It is very time-consuming. At certain points in time, I have to remember that I need to go earn some living for the Neil Bailey Foundation to keep the kids fed. They can only eat so many used tires and old motorcycle boots. <laughs> so, as you know, as compelling as it is to do it, you do have to. I have to be a little bit careful because um, I still have to earn a living, and I have to keep the lights on at home. So, um, things can be a bit slow. Uh, we did expand into South Africa in 2013, which was fabulous, and um, we've been building small homes. There's a couple of ladies out there. We built homes for that are looking after grandkids. Their, their children died of AIDS, leaving these um, grandbabies with no one but their grandmothers to look after them. And they just live in just horrendous conditions. So um, we were able to go to Africa, identify a project, take people on rides, and raise the money to start building the homes. And I'm teamed up with a guy called Drew Alexander and been in the motorcycle industry a long time. And so now he is Wellspring's South African director and he basically deals with the fundraising and the logistics and the organization of what we're doing in South Africa. And I'm now more focused back onto Peru. Well, that's good. So you're kind of picking up assistance along the way as you grow and go. Yeah. yeah we just took, we just took on a guy called Alex Mark. He's on our new, on the board of directors, he's a, a restaurant owner in Charlotte. He owns a very big Mediterranean restaurant. He's an off-road adventure guy, married to an Ecuadorian lady, very, very, very sensitive to what we're doing in Peru. And he's a, you know, he's a very sharp local businessman. I think he brings a completely different facet to Wellspring. You know, I'm a creator and a writer and a TV guy and a journalist and a 
you know, speaker and he's sort of a nuts and bolts business guy that's going to look into the stuff that Wellspring needs because, you know, it's it, it becomes a business and that's not my forte. Well, sure. You definitely need both sides of that equation to uh, to make the thing successful. It has to be tough to to see the children in the environments that they're growing up in. Um, that's the downside of what you're doing there. Can you share with us some experiences that were uplifting, uh, some of the great experiences that have come out of what you've done with Wellspring? I think the the driving force for me for Wellspring is little Kathleen. She's the girl that if you'd seen Neil Bailey Rides um, that I connect with, she's very, very disabled. And somehow she knows me and we have a really, really strong bond. And that's, to me, one of the things that keeps driving me forward is my need to try and take care of her. I think the inspiration that people like Sister Loretta, the lady that runs the orphanage, gives me that she spent nearly 50 years of her life down there in that desert living in some just pretty terrible conditions to care for these kids. But when you see the way they love her and the amount of love that's in that place, you sometimes feel a bit jealous perhaps of our life here because our life here is all about money and material possessions and power. And I don't know, it's not, it's a very, very different life here. So that can be incredibly uplifting to see even in the even with the way they live there's so much love to go around down there um but it's equally frustrating too you know you come back to america and and you you want to make a difference and you want to help these people and you look around at how much we have here and i don't think it's unfair to say that a lot of people around about us in our daily life are pretty busy complaining about how rough they get it and right in comparison there's nothing rough about it at all. It's just some idea that they're creating. So that, that creates a lot of conflict because, you know, you want to grab these people by the collar and drag them down to Peru and stick them in a wooden hut with no heat or air and no running water for a couple of weeks with uh, some very basic food and clothing and say, you need to look at your life a little differently here, mate, you know? So it's, it, it can be really good and it can be really bad. So, yeah, it's got to be difficult to make that transition between that world and this one where you have people over here, you know, uh, telling you their story about $5,000 worth of chrome for their Harley, yet you're realizing how much $5,000 could do for these kids over there. Right, right. And, but then you can't, you know, but then it's not our position to judge. I mean, if that's what someone wants to do, you know, there's absolutely no reason they shouldn't do that. It's just, you know, when you, when you figure, you might have a better idea of what they could do with their five thousand dollars. It can be a bit frustrating, but but that's you know it's it's uh it's an ongoing process for sure. How you yeah. how you look, and there's so much need around the world. I mean, the the poverty we're dealing with in in Peru, and the poverty we're dealing with in in South Africa, you know, it, it's nothing compared to some of the stuff that's happening in other places around the world. So. And these just happen to be projects that we're working on and have identified for the moment. And hopefully as we expand and grow, we will take on more places around the world and hopefully continue to do as much good as we can for kids that need help. Right. Of course. Yeah. You pick your battles and uh, dedicate your time. 
I think it's uh, it's awesome what you guys are doing. I think you guys are the the angels to children around the world, and I truly hope you guys can keep up that work and applaud you for your efforts, you and your entire gang. Yeah, and I've got to say, you know, Wellspring is not Neil Bailey. I mean, well, Neil Bailey happens to be a part of Wellspring, and Wellspring is an organization that exists because of the hard work, the dedication, and the time that a pretty big team of volunteers put in. So um, if you go to, to our website, you can get on our Meet the People page and see who we've got there, you know, from doctors and lawyers and IT guys and community directors. Um, and it's a whole team of very, very, very cool people that put in a lot of time to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. The people behind the scenes are just as important as the, the faces of the organization because without them, that it just doesn't run and it can't run efficiently. So my applause to them as well. Yeah, they're the ones that deserve the credit, you know, because they don't get the credit. I'm always sort of up front going, oh, you're so great, Neil, you do this and that. But it's not really me. It's the people behind me. So, Well, I saw a video of you recently riding a BMW 1000RR around the Circuit of America course. You did. That must have been a phenomenal little ride you had there. Yeah, so I still um, I still get out and do my day job from time to time, you know, testing motorcycles. And I had was fortunate enough to be invited down to the Circuit of the Americas just a couple of weeks ago to ride the new BMW S1000RR. And I've got to say, absolutely phenomenal experience. Um, I, hadn't, I haven't been on a racetrack in, uh, in a fair bit of time. So I felt a little rusty the first couple of go-arounds trying to get to grips with a 200-horsepower, fire-breathing monster on a racetrack I'd never been to. But by about the third or the fourth session, um, i got to say, I was uh, I was uh, making some magic with that bike because it's just so easy to ride. Yeah, it looked like a great time. I was I was jealous watching that video. So you got to do a, pull, a few laps on that. That was for test. I was wondering what you were out there for. I didn't know it was for a, for a write-up on the actual bike. Yes, it actually was the introduction to the, the new model. So, you know, we had a presentation to explain the benefits, and then we had four sessions out on the track to, to go, you know, see what our our opinion of the bike was. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I rode the original one when it came, when it was first introduced in Portugal. I think it was back in uh, back in 09, and then I got to test it again um, in West Palm Beach. And, of course, you know, it's, it's an interesting bike because – if you remember at that time how fast bike technology was changing and manufacturers were bringing out new bikes nearly every year with you know latest greatest so BMW had a particularly interesting moving target to hit when they when they developed the S1000 they sort of had to pick a point that they thought bikes were going to evolve to as they were designing it and then kind of designed to beat that point which they did in 09 and um Things have slowed down till now, but this new one is certainly a marked improvement. Yeah, there's some phenomenal sport bikes out there just hitting the pavement this year. I'm actually getting ready to go down there for the MotoGP races. It'll be my, my first time seeing the MotoGP races, so I'll get a, get to lay his eyes on the track that you just took a few spins around. Yeah, that'll be fun to go and see MotoGP. I don't know if you know in my career that I've ridden a MotoGP bike twice. I have not. In fact, I was just going to follow that up with what your uh, what your racing background is. Well, actually, I have very little racing background, but I've done a lot of testing, and um, it's kind of a funny story. Um, in '05, 
the the year that Rossi won his world championship, I think it was the last year, the 990s, um, before they went to the 800s. And of course, now they've come back again. If you followed the chronology of the engine changes, right. I, got to, I got to go to Valencia and ride his M1 the day after he, or two days after he won the world championship on it. Wow, now that's an experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not not too many people get to uh, take advantage of that one. Yeah, they they used they don't do it anymore. I, mean, I guess it's prohibitively expensive and um they send you know one journalist from America gets to go and ride it every year and I was lucky enough to have that honor twice and boy I tell you, standing in the pits of Valencia looking down the line of ex-world champions and famous road racers and you know you got Giacomo Agostini and Alan Cathcart, Matt Oxley, Luca Cadalora, Nobby Ueda was there, Alex Creville. It was just like on and on. Then the bottom of the line, Neil Bailey. <laughs> yeah, just standing there with the legends. And I'm like, oh my god, I just couldn't believe that. He, you know, it was like the worst day of my life waiting to ride that thing. How would you describe being on a MotoGP bike? I mean, the 200 horsepower in the S1000RR is uh, is that's a lot of ponies. You know, when you get on one of these MotoGP bikes and as light as they are and as powerful as they are, it's got to be one heck of an experience. Yeah, it's pretty mind numbing, really. I obviously I didn't know the track. I hadn't ridden the bike before, and you got I think you got four laps, and so it wasn't even a chance to begin to understand the racetrack. And I kind of wobbled around the track a bit. and then, But I had made a, a pact with myself that when I got onto the straight, I was going to go full throttle. I was going to max it out. I wasn't. <laughs> so I just, I just decided that if I was going to ride it, I at least needed to see, because you know, I knew I wouldn't be able to do very much with it around the track. So I came onto the front straight for the first time, and I hadn't even completed one lap. And I just pinned the thing. And... Uh, it was so unbelievably violent and noisy and, you know, it just was handlebars were flapping in my hands, lights are going off. I was hoping it was some sort of wheelie control because the front wheel was nowhere near the floor and I'm just rowing down through the gears and I'd been watching all the guys like Catalor and Crookville and Agostini and all these people during the day. I was the last one. They must have thought if there's anything left, they'd let me ride it. Right. No one was, there was a certain point everybody had gone before they let off the throttle and went for the brakes. I thought, all I've got to do is hold it. It was like a little bridge thing. All i got to do is hold it to under the bridge. So I finally get the thing. We're going down the straight, full throttle. Everything's going mad. And I'm like, oh, I wonder where I put the brakes on. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't even have a braking marker picked out. I don't even have any idea about turning. So in sheer panic, I just roll off, go for the brakes, grab the front brake, and even nothing happens which is a really great experience about 180 miles an hour on some million dollar motor gp bike and so for the next split second i'm my whole life's flashing in front of my eyes it's my career's ending and then all of a sudden i guess there were carbon fiber brakes they heated enough to work and they worked so quickly and so effectively i had to downshift and accelerate to get into the corner because i stopped so quick wow wow <laughs> that says something it was a it was a rough day at work, but you know the main thing is I live to tell the story, and of course it's very cool afterwards that I got to ride Rusty's MotoGP bike. So, yeah, that would be my uh, that would be my take on on riding one of those, just trying to get around the track without wrecking a million dollar motorcycle. Well, a few people are wrecked during the day, and it was very nerve wracking to watch all these people kind of, you know, coming in crashing the bike. So the best part about it was was I get on the bike, 
and they started up and of course I am just, you know, nervous as all get out. And then the mechanic guy puts his hand on my shoulder and he yells something in my ear. And I think, oh, here we go. We're going to get a bit of advice here, you know, on, on how to be calm and how to ride the bike. And I didn't hear it. And I said, what? And he yells in my helmet and he goes, you crash, it will f- kill you. <laughs> which is which is just the kind of gentle advice you need before you go out to ride someone's, you know, some world champion's million-dollar motorcycle. But that was a good day out. That's a great send-off. Appreciate that, right? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny. I thought he was going to lean in and tell you where the throttle was just to, right, to right. rip you a little bit. <laughs> no. yeah, he didn't, he didn't want to, he didn't want to rebuild another one. And I was the last one out. So I don't blame him. That's the thing that, that fascinates me is these guys crash these things, you know, and destroy them, you know, in the turns and they, they walk away, of course, you know, most times, but I just think, Holy cow, you know, the, the, the setup and rebuild and adjustments, they have to go through all of that over again because they're so finely tuned. It just baffles me that I don't know how the mechanics do it. I think they have the harder job to to do all that work all week and then then watch the the rider destroy the thing and know they have to go right back in and do it again. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. But uh, they are some some amazing machines. And then a couple of years later, I rode his 800, which – was a little more easy to it was a little easier to ride than than the 990 for sure and the good part about it was was i knew which way the racetrack went the second time so and i plus i had i knew that i had a good possibility of living to tell the story because i'd lived through the first one so that wasn't so bad yeah a little bit a little bit of experience helps there for sure so how can folks find out more about you and Wellspring International Outreach? How can they reach you if they want to help out themselves? Well, Wellspring has a website, wellspring-outreach.org. Uh, Wellspring has a Facebook page, Wellspring International Outreach. And I'm extremely easy to find. Um, I have Neil Bailey Rides, neilbailey.com. And my Facebook page is Neil Bailey. So you can find me, send a message. My email's neilbailey at yahoo.com. Um, if you can't find me, you're probably living in a cave somewhere and sending smoke signals. Because in the modern age, I'm very, very easy to get a hold of. So just send me a message. Check out Wellspring. Donate some money. Ask me a question. And uh, we'll take it from there. Well, great. We'll get all of those in the show notes uh, to make it even easier on folks to find you. So you have another project coming up. I alluded to your 2013 uh, Neil Bailey Rides project. Uh, what do you have to tell us about the next one you're working on? Well, April 9th, we will leave for Peru. And uh, I've got 16 people, I think, with me, um, 15 or 16 people with me. We're going to fly into Keeper and we're going to be riding – BMW GSs, eight eight riders. My um, my lady Andrea will, will be with me on the back, and then um, a couple of my friends are taking their wives and girlfriends, and then a couple of my buddies are going to go and uh, ride in one of the trucks. And my good friend Flavio, you would have seen him on the Bailey rides, will be driving the other, and we will go right around Peru, I think for about eight or nine days, and then we'll take a trip to the orphanage to see the kids and do some business, and then we'll come home. And we will be filming the whole time we're there. And it will be a Neil Bailey Rides production. So um, right now, 
there's no TV deal in place. Um, so it could be confined to video or it might make television. I'm not too sure until we get back, but it will be a Neil Bailey Rides production. And it'll be the first one since we um, actually did the last one in Peru, which aired 2013. All right. So no doubt folks can pay attention to neilbaileyrides.com and watch for the uh, the release of the, the latest one. Yeah, I think eventually um, I just took back ownership of Neil Bailey Rides as sole proprietor. I'd been in partnership with someone before. And um, obviously, you know, that takes a bit of, um, bit of time, you know, dotting I's and crossing T's and dealing with, with paperwork. So I think we will eventually converge everything to Neil Bailey Rides. So, you know, it won't be sort of scattered between different Facebook pages and stuff. And there'll be plenty of place there to get to Wellspring to find out what we're doing. So it'll all be, just be, you know, the easiest way to find me will be Neil Bailey Rides um, because it'll either be the website or the Facebook page. Right. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely put that one in the show notes. And for clarification, it's N-E-A-L-E-B-A-Y-L-Y-R-I-D-E-S.com. Yeah. And uh, same for the Facebook page, Neil Bailey Rides Facebook. All right. Very good. Well, Neil, thank you so much for spending a little time with us today and telling us about your organization and your future projects. Well, not a problem. I mean, thanks for having me on. It's always fun. Um, it's been a you know, it's been a crazy and wild life for me on motorcycles. And, um, you know, I've met some wonderful people, had incredible experiences, and um, just hope to continue. We go back to South Africa in October again. There are spaces available if anyone wants to ride with us. I can guarantee it'll be a lot of fun. If you don't like dirty jokes, laughing, riding motorcycles, and seeing incredible scenery and having a good time, don't come. Well, very good. We appreciate your time. Take care and good luck with all your endeavors. Well, thank you very much. Would you like to be a guest on a future show? Just go to AdventureSportsPodcast.com and click the Contact Us button. 